LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to an interview that I did with the artist Helen Kamek about her new book, I Will Keep My Soul, which is also an exhibition that's up here in LA till August at Art and Practice in Lemur Park. Tell me more about Helen's work. Yeah, her work is fascinating. It's photography-based. She makes films. She does installation. She does sound pieces. She works in archives. And actually, this book is um, drawn from this time that she spent in New Orleans and that she spent at an archive there, the Amistad Research Center. And just digging in this archive on civil rights, and she encountered the work of this artist named Elizabeth Catlett, who I had never heard of, but who is a sculptor and a printmaker and very active in the civil rights movement and really was like fascinating woman. And she lived a lot of her life in Mexico. So Elizabeth Catlett is kind of like worked into this book and this exhibition and she did a sculpture of Louis Armstrong in Congo Square in New Orleans. So then Helen like goes to Congo Square and photographs the sculpture and I think kind of meets people and just follows these threads of present and past in her work and explores, you know, a lot of topics around history and race and feminism and placemaking in a way that I'm really drawn to. And she was so wonderful to speak with. Sounds great. I wish I was in LA so I could go see the show. Yes, I know. It's too bad. It will actually be traveling in some form, Helen was telling me, to New Orleans. So maybe you'll have to plan a trip there. Out of luck once again, but... um, (laughs) Why? (laughs) Why? How do you know? Well, I, I don't have any plans to go to New Orleans in the near future, but if I... Have you ever been there? I have been to New Orleans. One of the best weddings that I have ever been to was a New Orleans wedding. The rehearsal dinner was a crawfish boil. Mm. It was fantastic and and so much fun, and I'd never done that before. And then the groom's father uh, was in a jazz band, is still, I presume, and so they performed at the rehearsal dinner, at the wedding. It was just like, it was like the most fun wedding, truly, ever. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing town. Um, I've always had a great time when I've been there, and I've always felt like it's not really a part of the rest of the United States. I mean, of course it is, no. because it has the same problems uh, in, in fold that the rest of the U.S. does, but it has a lot more life than most places as well. Yeah, it's true. Well, okay, maybe we can all make plans to go there, visit some good friends. Shout out to to you guys. You know who you are. You're probably not this, but <laughs> uh, and see the Helen Kamek show. Yes, great. For now, it will be up in LA until August at Art and Practice. Great. Let's listen to the interview. Wonderful. so glad to be speaking with the artist Helen Kamek today. Kamek's work, which spans film, photography, print, text, song, and performance, has been exhibited worldwide, including solo shows at the White Chapel Gallery, the Collection Maramotti, Void, and the Irish Museum of Art. She is a recipient of a 2017 Max Mara Art Prize for Women and the 2019 Turner Prize, which she and the three other finalists decided to split evenly among themselves for the first time in that award's history. 
Currently in partnership with the California African American Museum, she has an exhibition up here in Los Angeles at Art and Practice entitled, I Will Keep My Soul. It's also the title of her new book, which she joins me to discuss today. Both the book and the exhibition are drawn from Kamek's time in New Orleans, which she began to visit early last year, and address the city's social history, geography, and community. Her book brings together poetry, film stills, photography, collage, and a number of archival documents from the Amistad Research Center. One of the focuses of Kamek's research is the artist Elizabeth Catlett, an active member of the civil rights movement who taught in New Orleans early in her career in the 1940s before leaving the U.S. for Mexico. Decades later, she received a commission to create a sculpture of Louis Armstrong in Congo Square, a historical meeting place for enslaved people in the city. Catlett's words and work are woven throughout the book and evoke the rich accumulation of history that are ever present and constantly presenting themselves within a contemporary encounter of place. Thanks so much for being here, Helen. Thank you. So I thought we could talk a little bit about your first impressions when you visited New Orleans, how you came to be in the city, when you knew that you wanted to make work about it. When did you first go there and why? I guess I went because I was invited to go and I was invited to go by Andrea Anderson from Rivers Institute. And it had been, I guess, maybe a four year conversation that we've been having. She had seen some of my work early on and had contacted me and we basically were just chatting. So we chatted throughout lockdown, all the lockdowns that were happening with this idea that at some point Rivers were going to partner with the Armistad Archive and start a residency programme. And she invited me to be the, one of the first artists on the residency programme. So it was a conversation that had been growing and growing. And it was a conversation that was about poetry. It was about music. It was about sound. It was about voice. It was about different kinds of civil rights settings and I guess stories that both she and I are interested in and have been interested, some of them overlapping and interweaving and some of them incredibly different. But that was the beginnings, really. And so from that conversation, there was an invitation for me to come to New Orleans at the beginning of 2022 for a one month, as it was then. The intent was a four-week residency. It soon changed, but initially it was a, an invite for four weeks. What struck you about the city when you first got there? What were some of your initial impressions of it? I think it was somewhere that felt incredibly different to anywhere I'd ever been before. I haven't traveled very much in the States. I have more so now, but at that point I hadn't. And I'd been to New York a few times. And so I had an impression of the East Coast and I had the impression of New Orleans as somewhere that was full of life and energy and sound and music. And actually, when I arrived, I arrived into quite a gentle warm but not really hot, not really humid city that was kind of moving in a slow wintry space until I started to meet people and then that energy started to come to life really. You know, the first second line that I went to, the first time I went to a restaurant, one of the restaurants that I think it's owned by a mother and son. It was about the energy that was happening in that restaurant and the kinds of families that were meeting there and eating there and the conversations that were happening and the sounds that were happening. And I soon found myself being drawn into a kind of, onto a stage, into a kind of play that soon became something that felt quite real the longer I was there. And what point in your research did you find Elizabeth Catlett and had you 
known about her work before? I mean, when I first arrived, I, so I'm kind of telling the story of it feeling quite gentle and calm and quiet. And then that building as I was there. And partly that's probably because part of my experience when I first arrived was that I was taken straight to the archive. I had done a little bit of online research because the archive is, it kind of has a setting online where you can look and request different kinds of materials and documents. So I'd had a bit of a look, but one of the things that I'd really wanted to look at was the art collection, because I think probably many people don't know, they think of it as an archive that's kind of embedded in the civil rights movement, but actually they have a really interesting, quite expansive art collection. So I had seen some of the catlet prints before I arrived. And so I asked them if there was be any possibility that on my first day I could have a look at some actual catlet prints. And so they said yes. And so I arrived and, you know, some of them were laid out on the table and I was just completely blown away by them as imagery, as storytelling, as metaphor in a way that I wasn't really expecting. And so that was the beginning of then looking at the Catlett papers, reading the letters, thinking about how she navigated her space as an artist across many decades. What were the prints like or what's that aspect of her work like? There were some of the prints that she made. She made a series where she was making works about women, black women. So one was a mother and a child one was a woman working and they just, they were figurative in some ways, but because they were woodcuts, they had this kind of the energy of the line. They weren't completely representational and they felt embedded in a particular historical moment. My dad used to make woodcuts and it reminded me of a kind of moment that he was making woodcuts like probably, I think he was making them in the kind of early 60s. And she was also making them in that kind of period. And so there was something that was a historical pull as well. And there was a sense, I don't know, maybe I was hoping for a sense of the politics of them, but that's what I felt as well. And so it felt like a kind of organic pull into the archive, thinking, using her and her work, but then thinking about how that would lead me into the civil rights movement around Mississippi, but particularly in New Orleans. And I guess then it led me to many different, it was kind of like this rhizomatic story that unfolded, but she was absolutely the catalyst and the works were the catalyst too. Yeah, they're absolutely beautiful. I had never heard of her before and um, reading some of the letters here, it's so interesting, like her work with or for Angela Davis, for instance, when Angela Davis was in prison, she made this poster and um, she also seemed to have had such a vibrant career in a lot of ways, even though I was reading that when she was in university, because she wanted to study with the painter Grant Wood, she couldn't even stay in the dormitories at the school that she was attending. So it seems like there was certainly racism and adversity that she encountered in her career as an artist, but she also has such a full career. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about her, her life and her work. I mean, I think one of the things that, it's an ongoing conversation in New Orleans, I think, about this idea of resilience. And I think there's some anger and there's some frustration that people are expected to be resilient. And so I feel slightly worried about using the word, but actually she was an incredibly resilient and strong and powerful person who wasn't prepared to give up on any count. And so each time she made work, she also considered what that work meant, where it sat, 
who could see it, how it could be taught, how it could be thought about, how it could be critiqued, how it could be challenged, and really how it would have some life outside of the art world. And for me, that was, a, I guess, a touchstone because that's how I think about making work, how I would like to think about making work. And she was always pushing. So there was one moment where she wrote to get a grant because she wanted to do some further study and to write a research paper that she wanted to also give and deliver. And it took her a really long time to get the response that she was after, but she didn't give up. So she kept writing and she kept writing. And so these letters and these papers are also in the archive. As in the book, we have the letters that she was writing to and fro about the Louis Armstrong statue and how she was standing up for this notion and this idea that as an artist, she was making an interpretation. It wasn't a photograph. She was making a sculptural work and she didn't give up. You know, every letter came back saying, oh, we're not sure that his button is, you know, his shirt is unbuttoned a little bit too low and he would never stand like that. And he wouldn't hold his handkerchief like that in his hand and the bell of his trumpet doesn't look exactly as his trumpet did. And every time she would, I think she, you can hear her feeling more and more exhausted by it, but she would come back and she would say, this is my interpretation and this is why I've decided to do it this way. And so I think that's what strikes me about her life is that she, she had such a drive and an energy, which I think must have felt quite exhausting. So I think as much as being pulled to Mexico, she also felt pushed for, she needed some space and she needed some headspace and she wanted to have a family. And I mean, my reading of it is that she needed to be somewhere else, somewhere else so that she could then keep coming back to do the things that she really knew she needed and wanted to do. Like the letters also in the book about the work that you're talking about, the posters for, to support the release of Angela Davis. You know, there are letters where she's writing back and forth to Bettina Aptheker. And um, they're just talking about, you know, having to do things in code because it was dangerous. It wasn't just about people wouldn't necessarily give her commissions. It was it was about she would be investigated. And so these kinds of considerations were really real for her across the entirety of her career, I would say. You know, something that strikes me in the book is that it seems like translating research into object performance, all these things like is a kind of daunting task that, you know, like her letters on their own just reproduced is one thing, but then how do you kind of like take that and infuse it into the work you're going to make of your own for the show or for the book? And I love that the first image in the book is a card catalog you know, that's so, that's so beautiful and kind of puts us in the mood for what will follow. But just as an artist using research, you know, how do you embody it? How do you make objects from it? Performances, whatever. The first thing is that I have to feel captured. So we're talking a lot about Elizabeth Catlett, but actually there were many people and many situations that captured me. I felt captivated in the archive. And that's the thing that's most important for me. And I think as an artist, it's a freedom that maybe academics who use archives don't have in the same way. I don't know that. I'm not an academic. But talking to the archivist, they were saying, oh, you know, we love it when an artist comes in. Because actually, they don't say, I'd like to see this box and this these papers, and I'm doing this, and that's why I'd like to see them. They come in and they say, actually, I felt really excited by that. I don't know if that's got anything to do with that, but I'd also like to see that. And 
I think that idea of interweaving stories, objects, moments in history, different kinds of geographies is really something that as an artist, you feel you have the freedom to do, or I feel that I have the freedom to do. And once I start with that kind of interweaving, I start to write and I start to respond to what's going on inside me, but also in my head and what I feel about it. I might start thinking about writing poetry or poetic texts. I might start writing something about a response to a piece of material that I've read or I've looked at or I've touched maybe because there are also objects in the archive. And then when I start doing that, I start trying to decide whether that might sit as part of a script or whether it makes me think of wanting to make an image or whether I start singing something in my head. And so that kind of seepage starts to happen. And as it happens, it builds and builds until I have lots of different kind of disparate texts and ideas and stories. And then it's about trying to pull those together. And alongside that, I suppose, which are in the book, are lots of film stills. So I take my camera out with me wherever I go and whatever. It's, it's almost the same as being captivated by the something in the archive. Something will captivate me and then I'll film it. And then something might come out in the archive that I think, okay, that's a site where I need to take my camera and I need to film it. The space where Congo Square used to be came from the archive. I need to film that. But there's also a hospital called Charity Hospital in New Orleans that was the free hospital that was shut down in lockdown and never opened again. That's now no more and stands as this kind of modernist structure that you can see from many places in New Orleans. And it's empty and it's not able to offer care to anyone anymore. And I didn't know any of that. I just knew that it felt like a really sad place. And so I took my camera maybe on the second or third day and I went to film it. So it sounds really chaotic, but actually that chaos somehow manages to start to weave itself together into different kinds of stories and different kinds of forms, I suppose, or materials, whether that's the book form or a video or a performance. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it sounds like a organic process where you're following intuition. And also, I think the the research versus the kind of contemporary encounter is really interesting. Like you learn so much about Congo Square and then you go there and you are filming the Louis Armstrong sculpture, but it's, you know, how do you then translate into image like the depth of history in this place? I mean, it, the image doesn't have to stand alone in this case because there are other texts and we learn about the fascinating history of Congo Square, but allowing this glimpse of of the past to kind of seep into the present, you know, is that something that you think can come across in like a still image, for instance? Does the way you shoot reflect kind of trying to show that at all? I suppose what I would say is I use a lot of very still imagery when I'm filming and the still imagery for me is I guess it's a strategy. It's also, you know, I photography was where I kind of came from, if you like. And so the way that I use film means that there's a slowness and there's a lot of space. And what that space is trying to enable to happen is something else to seep in. So it depends what the image is sitting with, whether it's a voiceover that's singing, whether it's a voiceover that's trying to tell perhaps a, a different story to try and create a kind of duality of meaning that's going on at the same time. 
in very much in what you're describing. So this idea of different moments in time, different moments historically, sometimes even geographically in some projects where you might see one thing and then something is being talked about or you're hearing something from a completely different region or space. Those are strategies that I use. Whether I think the still image itself can sit and allow that seepage in, I would say sometimes it depends what's in the image and it depends how that image is contextualized. So we're talking about it in this book. And I think those images can do that because they're contextualized by everything else in the book. And they can do that in my films because they're contextualized by the rest of the film. For me, I'm not always sure that a still image can do all the things that I want it to do, which is why I moved away from photography and using still imagery into using something that I was able to or my aim was, my intent anyway, was to do more layering. Because then I think the more layering I can put in there, the more shifts, I suppose, can happen for the viewer. Well, that's my hope. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Helen Kamick, author of I Will Keep My Soul. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I have Colin Toybin on the line. His latest book is a collection of essays called A Guest at the Feast, and he's here to give us a book recommendation. You probably know this book called Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. But if you don't know this book, it's perfect. And it's interesting to watch perfection sentence by sentence. It took her 10 years to write. It's just, well, it's 115 pages. It took her 10 years to write. I asked her, what about the draft? She said, well, they're just from the floor on both sides up to my shoulder of drafting. And I asked her a teaching matter. She said, yes, because she was teaching creative writing. She was formulating all the things that she then could put into practice in her own book. She wrote an earlier novel, also about 100 pages, called Foster, which was made into the film or the movie called The Quiet Girl, which was up for an Oscar for Best International Film. It's made in Gaelic, in Irish, although Claire wrote the book in English. So this is somebody who over 20 years has published two books, 100 pages each. And it's interesting to watch what that looks like because um, you don't see the work in the prose. It's about ordinary people. It's about a transforming moment in the life of a very good man. And you realize with enormous shock the implications of the event for him. And for you as the reader. So she's just the best. And uh, I'm not alone in thinking that. It's not just an eccentric view or something. I mean, this if you haven't read this book, Small Things Like These, then it will really take you two hours. It's in print in America. It's published in America. And it's um, Claire Keegan. She's published two books of stories. And these two, she calls this a novel, the previous book a novella. It doesn't really matter. It's just, it's two hours, very rich experience. Wow. I love a perfect book more than anything else. So that sounds... There you go. There it is. Wonderful. Can you tell me the title one more time and the author? All Things Like These by Claire Keegan. Thank you so much, Colin. Okay, thank you very much, Kate. That was Colin Toybin. His latest book is A Guest at the Feast. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Helen Kamick, author of I Will Keep My Soul. There's a line, I think it was in one of the poems here, where you talk about enabling existence without appropriation. 
And I was curious, that seems like a really difficult line or a hard line to walk for any artist or writer, anyone. And I was wondering like, if that was something that was on your mind when you were in New Orleans visiting there as someone who was kind of more of an outsider about how you related to the city or meeting people, if even in kind of like harnessing these figures from history, from the archive, if that's something you thought about or if that's something you think about often in your practice. Yeah, I mean, I always think about it. And I think it's something that I sometimes get wrong. I hope my thinking about it enables me to somehow navigate it. And I would say, I won't necessarily talk about them here, but there have been probably two moments in my career where I feel like I really got it wrong. And those will always stay with me. And they were undoable, and that's fine. But it's kind of mistakes in terms of how I think about using text or stories or language. And they were quite genuine mistakes, but they've stayed with me. And what it means is that now I try to interrogate every single time that I tell a story, whether I'm telling it through my actual voice or whether somebody's telling it themselves with their own voice. But how I'm, again, we're going back to how I'm contextualizing what they're saying, how I'm weaving stories together, which will change the meaning of what they're saying, or will, even if I'm not changing it, it somehow shifts meaning, as any story does. Any kind of way of telling stories is what sits before then what's being said or what sits after it will change actually what's being said in that moment. So those are the things that are really important. But I'm also a little interested in playing with appropriation as well. And I think if I'm being completely clear and transparent about that playing with appropriation, then the play has a reason. I want to play with appropriation because I'm interested in who has voices, who gets to tell stories, whether their own stories or whether they're others' stories. I'm interested in that. And so when I write scripts or do performances, I quite often use texts from other people without saying, I don't know, Jordan said, and then I might just say, what they said in a written text and I string it together with something I've said or a song lyric or a poem or a political text and that's completely intentional because I want to play with this idea of appropriating language. Now that for me is completely different to trying to appropriate other people's stories in a way that they are my story or that they're a story that I'm sharing because I have some kind of ownership of those stories. It's a difficult line and I think it was more, it's always more difficult in the films than it was in this book. And this book contains many stories that already have a kind of container because many of them are from the archive. And then there are stories that I'm taking ownership of because they're my stories of being in New Orleans. And then other people have been invited to tell their stories of their experience in New Orleans and their names are there and it's very clear that they're their stories. And in the book, That's what we've tried to do is weave together different people's stories in a way that there's clarity and transparency. And in the film, it's different because people's names appear at the end of the story. And I think it's something that I probably have talked about before when I made a film in Northern Ireland, which was about the women's involvement in the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland. When I was first asked to make the film, I I declined. I said, I I don't think I'm the right person to make this film. This is not my history. It's not my story. 
and I'm not sure that it feels right. And I was persuaded actually by the curator and I went and I met people and sat and talked with some particular people who worked in the community politically, but also socially in the community in Derry and Northern Ireland. And actually, I came away from that thinking, OK, I just need to find my place in this story in order to be able to tell other people's stories. And so I had some strategies that I used that were about trying to, I suppose, bring into play who I was without me taking over any of the stories. And so that's something if I'm making a film that is cited somewhere outside of my experience, that's what I have to do is I have to find my thread, which brings me into the story, but doesn't take over the stories that are being told. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but that's the idea is that I have to be aware and conscious of who I am in any given situation, find my thread in, talk with people about that thread, because sometimes that thread brings out other elements of stories that people wouldn't necessarily be telling if I was from the inside. And then be very clear that I'm telling the story from the outside, but that inevitably we all have ins into other people's worlds as well. So whether that's about something that's familial, many people are parents, Many people have experienced loss. Many people understand what it means to feel on the margins. And some of those experiences enable us to translate stories as well. In the case of New Orleans, like what did you feel or how did you position yourself or when did you kind of click in like what your role in the storytelling was, like what your position was? Well, I think something about the archives and my fascination, but my drive, I suppose, to understand an idea of what it means to have civil liberties and civil rights. That was one thread that brought me in. Having a kind of diasporic experience, talking with many people as soon as I arrived at the relationship between New Orleans and the Caribbean, and knowing that my dad was born in Cuba, his family are Jamaica. We have these different kinds of experiences that move around. There's this kind of flux, I suppose, in the generational experience that my family have had. And I felt that also in New Orleans. And people, whether I brought it up, other people brought it up. So there was this conversation that was about movement and migration, forced migration, other kinds of migration. Those kinds of threads started to ignite very quickly with people that I met. I found myself walking on the street and people would talk to me and in a way that perhaps I started to feel seen, but kind of also unseen. That sounds really strange, but there are places that I walk generally where I feel that people look at me all the time. I live in Brighton. There's not a massive black population here. It's growing. It's changing. It's a very kind of open, politically open place to live. And that's why I've chosen to live here, as well as living partly here and partly in London, which gives me a space where there are more black people and black communities. But there's something about in the UK, you can move around and people do look at you because you are very much a minority, not necessarily when you live in certain parts of London but you have this marginal space and you're visible. And so people look at you and they see you in a particular way. And that felt completely different moving to New Orleans where there is a huge population jump of black communities, people of colour. And so I felt seen in a completely different way 
but actually I wasn't anything that stood out. And so I was seen, but I was also unseen. So there was a warmth and a friendliness, but actually nothing came out of that. It was kind of active and warm, but actually I was kind of unseen at the same time because I could have just been from there. And I've never experienced that in my life before. And so there was something about wanting to do something about that, that idea of the belonging and the unbelonging. I wonder, like, dealing or addressing American history versus, I mean, I don't, you know, like how much you had dug into British history or if you were thinking about more like in the past, like a history of a diaspora, but dealing with kind of what happened on American soil, if that was, you know, a revelation to you, new to you, if it was a history you already felt embedded in, how it was striking you to kind of really focus on the civil rights movement in America as opposed to elsewhere. I mean, I think I've probably said this before in other places, but I I found it really hard to read. I could read the words, but actually I didn't really take things in until I was probably in my, you know, 12 or 13. And so, you know, I've talked a lot actually about my mum buying me poetry books to try to get me to read, to make sense of what was stopping me being able to read. And by that, I probably mean read and then comprehend. There was something that was stopping that happening. I suppose in moments like that, Once I'd really started to read and think about poetry and use the kind of space that the words were giving me, I moved on to reading Maya Angelou, Alice Walker, Toni Morrison. That was my beginning to understand what language could really do and really convey. And then once, by the time I was sort of 15 and I, those were the stories that I related to and was energised and in many ways, I was upset, I was angry, I was excited, I was all the kinds of emotions that I feel from literature now, they were kind of ignited in me. And that was the beginnings of me being really drawn to African American history, in a way that I couldn't access anything here in the UK. In the 80s, in the UK, there weren't the texts for me to read, or if they were there, I didn't know how to access them. Whereas I could get Alice Walker and I could get Myra Angelou. I knew how to get them and find them. And the structures in the UK were just not there in terms of literature. And that literature really took me into reading sociological texts, historical texts. And so before I knew it, I was really interested in African-American histories in a way that it's taken me a lot longer to get into different kinds of histories in the UK. I feel like it's, a, I mean, A, it's a smaller place, but it's also the conversations about race have been way behind, I would say. Just the language, and I don't think that that's true now, but I'm talking about when I first started to want to find out and want to make a sense of you know, some of the things that my dad would talk about, some of his experiences that he told us. Once I started really wanting to know what that was about and why, I looked to the States. Hmm. It's so funny because all those authors you mentioned probably right now, like, are banned in um, many school districts throughout the U.S. And there's really been a backslide in talking about history. And certainly I think the right wing really sees history as dangerous here now. You know, this is like a conversation that's going on. So you're saying the U.K. was behind the U.S., but now is it like pushing forward because history has become this 
hugely contentious thing in political discourse at the moment here? Does that reverberate in the UK at all? Or is it really, this is just like an American thing right now? No, no, we're in the same. We also have a right-wing government. We also have the most crazy kind of retrograde actions in terms of education programs. What's being taken out of the historical curriculum is terrifying also here. What I would say is that libraries are part of a kind of drive for kind of access and education. They are radical places in this country, or they're trying to be radical places. And so there are texts that people can access and schools that I think are relying quite heavily on libraries because there are, I mean, also teachers are quite radical. So as a kind of profession in this country, they're fighting every step of the way because they've also been fighting to open up the curriculum And so, yes, I do think what you're describing in the States, it's not quite as devastating perhaps here, but it's we're a smaller country. And so in many ways it is as devastating. But yeah, there's a quelling and a quashing things about the slave trade, which are being completely removed. And also Britain's legacy of the slave trade are being removed from curriculums in schools. Teachers are fighting it. And even newspapers are talking about it. You know, there's kind of, there's some fight back, but it's not really enough. It's also, you know, it makes the the archive, the library and the teacher, the book, these things that we think of as maybe less exciting, more stodgy, you know. It's interesting that these things are now becoming such a contentious figures, you know, these things that would seem like, very staid now that an archive could be so political is, um, I mean, maybe that's not necessarily, it's kind of pathetic, but it's also not a bad thing to reinvigorate this idea of what is in the archive or what the archive could do. I mean, I think there's something, if you, quite often there are interviews with writers or artists and the question is, you know, what were the things that saved you? when you were a child or you were a teenager and inevitably they say libraries or they say museums or they say spaces that feel really stuffy and tame and conservative, small c, are actually these sites of real kind of generative action, I suppose, in caring for things that, caring for stories, even the stories that have been cared for because of an intent that now we might see as, we might see with outrage, you know? Like some of the, I don't know, some of the papers or the objects that quite clearly have been stolen in a way that people were also stolen. But actually in preserving them and caring for them, we are left with things that we can actually fight with and we can talk about and we can use to try to make sense of what's happened before so it doesn't keep happening over and over and over again. And so actually these are really radical spaces or they have the potential to be radical spaces. And archives like, you know, the Armistad archive feels like a really radical space. I think there's even reference in the essay in the book that's more about Congo Square and this white writer who was observing what was happening there. And in some ways it's like, problematic that his representation of the actions of the square became like one of the most well-known or I think that was the discussion but it was also that without that documentation so much would be lost because he was recording it you know so it has that 
conflicted feeling maybe, but it's also that there's still value in his recounting. Yeah, and the value is that it can be questioned. We can have that dialogue about who he was doing the looking. And that's the benefit, I guess, of kind of historical documents is that we can, however many years later, say, well, he was this person and there's something that's voyeuristic about it. There's something that's ethnocentric really about what he's doing and what he's saying and how he's describing and othering of people. But we can also have the conversation about it. And I also, you know, had the same conversation about Congo Square with Christina K. Robinson, who is a writer in New Orleans right now, in this moment, who was talking about generational stories about Congo Square. And so you can bring those discussions together. And in that weaving together or the clashing of those stories, something else comes out. And that's really important. And what did you... You know, I don't know how many times you visited New Orleans, but kind of, did you feel like that's a place you will continue to go back to? What was your impression like upon the end of this project? You know, like, how did that feel? And do you think there will be more times visiting there, more work made there? I guess I feel quite strongly that it can't be the end. (laughs) And actually, I don't think I've ever felt that so strongly about any other place I've ever visited or spent time. So, I mean, I've I've visited three times in a period of a year. It was two and a half months probably in total, but in three different blocks of time. And then was in conversation with people from my computer, wherever I was. So it was about a year's conversation with different people and different collaborations. And I guess we're going back, I'm going back in the fall for the kind of reiteration of the the project in New Orleans. And we're doing it completely differently than we did in LA. So we are using, you know, the Louis Armstrong Park for some large billboard works. We are going to have what we're describing as the quill sessions. So music sessions, which will, there's a stage that's been built that's just outside the gallery that we're showing the film in, that local people, some of the musicians who are featuring in the film will lead some of those quill sessions. We'll have a reading group, not just for this book or the stories or the text of this book, that books from the reading table and books that other people would like to bring in and draw and that the film will be in the gallery of University of New Orleans, which is the public university in New Orleans. And it's a small gallery and I've chosen it because I want to be more embedded in the community that welcomed me. And I want the film to be something that speaks to the community around where I lived and around people that I met and who were sharing their stories very generously, but also there's something about me trying to be a bit more embedded. So I hope to do a little bit of teaching while I'm there. So there's a kind of, I'm giving something back as well as being enabled to take something away. And if I can, in some way, open up a space for dialogue between people who would not necessarily have met each other other than me coming to the city and having this notion of this film that I want to make or this book that we'd like to make, then that's what this project is about, really. It's about a coming together and a, and a conversation and a dialogue. And it's about art and music and politics and what happens when those things touch each other. Well, that sounds wonderful. And I'm so glad you'll be going back. For now, your show is up here in Los Angeles until August. It is, yes. I'm really happy with the show and I'm 
I was happy that as well, having the show in Limeup Park, in art and practice, it was the first time I've ever had an opening where the majority of the audience or the people who were coming to that opening were black. I've never experienced that in my entire life. And it really meant something to me. And the engagement with the books on the book table, with the film, with the the performance that I gave with Roshanak Keshti, it really meant something that there was a very different kind of audience that I felt I was trying to speak to. And that's what the USA can give. We don't have that in the, in the UK in the same way. I'm really glad to hear that. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. That was Helen Kamek. Her new book and exhibition are called I Will Keep My Soul. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.